On May 31st in 1899, more than 2,200 people were killed in a catastrophic flood in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The death toll that day included 99 whole families and another 98 where both parents were lost. There were hundreds who were orphaned and there were many other families that either lost moms, dads, or children. What was it that caused this sudden and severe catastrophe? Well, the easy answer is to say a flash flood, part of whose aftermath you see pictured up there on the screen. But the real answer that lay behind that flash flood was a series of compromises that had been building up until the dam broke high up in the mountains above Johnstown. There was a a hunting and fishing club for the ultra-rich, and there was a lake up there, and in order to enlarge the lake, they uh, built a dam. And as they were adding to the dam up there, uh, they did it in a very haphazard way. They just dumped rocks and stumps and dirt without a lot of engineering um, at the time. They, uh, as the, the water built up and the game fish started to be lost over the dam, they pulled the pressure valves out and they added some screens to keep the fish in. But then to save money, they quit maintaining the screens and debris built up and so the pressure valves were gone. To make the ride more enjoyable and quicker for the members, they cut the top off the dam so the carriages didn't have to go all the way around uh, the lake in order to get to their their homes up there. And each one of these little compromises mounted upon the next and the next until that day in May when the dam failed and a wall of water rushed down the mountain, wiping out the heart of the city below, killing over 2,200 people. As we look in our Bible today to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a church there that was warned about a series of compromises that they were making. And God told these Christians there in this city that if they did not stop with these compromises, that they too were ultimately going to amount to a catastrophic failure, one in which their church would be wiped out and God's coming judgment. I invite you to look with me in your Bible at Revelation chapter 2, as we look at the church of Pergamum that is there in verses 12 through 13, God writes to them and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and that you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, if you're joining us today, what we've been doing is going through a series in the book of Revelation, looking at the the seven letters to the seven churches there. And each of these letters, as we've seen, begins where God addresses the letter to the angel. Uh, The Greek word is angelos, angelos, and it means a messenger. And it's used not just of a heavenly angel, but it's also used of a, uh, a man or a woman who could be used as an earthly messenger. And the messenger... The one the letter is addressed to is the teaching pastor or elder of each church. They didn't have Bibles like we do in that day where everyone had access to a copy. So the letter would be sent to the pastor who would then read it to the congregation. And this letter was sent to the church of Pergamum. And it is the third of the seven in this circle, this geographic circle as we've seen. Last week we were looking at Smyrna. And now we've moved up to the north to Pergamum. And this was a city that was located uh, inland from the coast and 15 miles inland and 50 miles to the north. Now, the name Pergamum means a citadel. 
the name is also uh, related to the word parchment, which we'll talk about here in a moment in this message. But it was named a citadel, and it was so named because it was high up on a mountainside. This is the, the ruins of an amphitheater uh, from within the city, and it was on a thousand-foot cliff at the junction of two rivers. It was a very strategic location and one that was very well fortified, so much so that it was the capital of a previous empire. But in the time that this letter was written, around 90 AD, it served as the eastern capital of the Roman Empire. Rome had taken over the, uh, the empires of the day, and this was now their eastern capital because of what a significant city it was. It was a uh, significant city, not just in terms of military uh, protection, but it was also a major center of learning. It had a university and a library, which was second only to the library in Alexandria in Egypt in that day. Now, before it became the Roman capital, the, the king of the previous empire wanted to have the world's greatest library, and so he tried to hire away the librarian from Alexandria in Egypt. Now, King Ptolemy, who was the king of Egypt at the time, didn't want this to happen, so he put his librarian in prison to keep him from being able to take this other job offer. And then in retaliation, he cut off the paper supply to Pergama and all of Asia Minor. Uh, paper in that day was papyrus. It was made from the uh, bulrush reeds that grew along the Nile and was beaten into uh, fiber and made into paper. So Pergama, in order to keep growing their library, had to come up with an alternative, uh, an alternate paper source. And so they developed parchment which was done by treating animal skins to be able to write on them. Uh, those of you in the academic world know that today people still refer to earning their diplomas as getting their sheep skins. And this is where it comes from, uh, this background. Another thing that has come into our culture in this day from Pergama is the escapium that was there. This was the Mayo Clinic of the day. It was a, a hospital uh, complex. It was located in the pagan temple to this god of healing. And um, people in that day believed that if uh, he was the patron god of healing, but his symbol was a snake, and you'll recognize this in our day and age, uh, people would go to this temple to worship, and then they had a hospital wing where you could stay in, and they had non-poisonous snakes that would slither over you. And I see some of you doing this. And uh, thankfully, modern medicine has advanced from, this, uh, from that time. But the symbols have, have continued to be carried into our day. Uh, the single snake that you see there in blue also has a tie-in to Numbers chapter 21 where you'll recall the people had been bitten by snakes and Moses was told to put a bronze serpent up on a pole and if the people looked at it, they would be healed. Now, I share this trivia about diplomas and snakes because I think it's tragic to see how something from this letter that we're writing, this city and culture in that day still has influence and impact in our culture today, and yet the church that was there uh, no longer exists, and the impact that they had was lessening over time because of the compromises that were being made there. And God warns us today here in San Antonio at Wayside Chapel, that if we are those who will uh, be carried away by the culture of the day, that we too will lose our impact. Uh, we're told here in Matthew, in Matthew 5.13, it says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. 
Now, Jesus says here in verse 13, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And you see this image of the serpent that is there. We've already talked about the hospital complex and the tie-in to snakes. But all throughout the Bible, Satan is pictured as being a serpent. And this is actually a panel from the temple to Zeus that was located there in Pergamum. And you see it was a very prominent picture, uh, again, of serpents in that city. This is the actual uh, Thronos, the throne of Zeus, uh, from Pergama. It's actually located in Berlin. German archaeologists uh, a, a while back un- uncovered this in their excavations, and they carried it back to Berlin to the museum and reconstructed it. And that previous panel I showed you is, is from this actual uh, throne that was there in, in Pergama. Now, this was high up on the mountain. This was the most prominent temple at the time. And um, in it, again, you see this motif of of a certain, uh, I mean, of a serpent. And so as Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where the throne of Satan is, these are some tie-ins. But another part of this, I told you the Greek word is thronos. And this word thronos speaks of the seat of authority. Uh, It was also used in terms of the judicial seat. Today we picture uh, judges that are up on the bench. They have the bench in the courtroom, and it is from there that they administer judgment and uh, justice. And as this uh, was being written to those in Pergama, I told you it was the eastern capital of the Roman Empire. And as such, it was a a place of authority and justice that was dispensed. Uh, Not everybody could could dispense the death penalty. But the Roman proconsul there in Pergama had the ability to decide life and death matters. And we see where Jesus says in Revelation 2.12, he identifies himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now you recall that I told you each of these letters uh, reveals something of the attributes of Jesus Christ. And it is always tied in with the culture, uh, the context in which the letter was written. The two-edged sword was a special sword. It was only uh, able to be carried by a person who had the authority to decide life and death matters. And so the Roman proconsul had a two-edged sword as a symbol of his authority to decide life and death uh, capital cases. And so as Jesus says that he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, he's not speaking of the Romans. He's speaking of himself as being the one who has the authority to decide life and death matters. Now, Jesus, you'll recall, uh, we talked last time about how Jesus Christ is the one who has authority over the second death decisions. The second death decisions we saw in the previous letter were those related to what happens to us after we physically died our first death then we face the possibility of a second death. If we're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we go before the great white throne judgment found there in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 and following. And that judgment is for those who have rejected Jesus. And he says, everyone who has rejected me will be rejected by me and sent to the lake of fire, what we call hell. And that is the second death because it means eternal separation from God for all eternity. In Matthew 10, 28, we're told, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. As Christians in Pergama stood for Christ, uh, just like those in Smyrna that we saw last week, they were facing the possibility of being martyred, of being killed for their faith. 
And he says uh, that as he speaks to those in this city, he says that they are to be like Antipas. Look at verse 13. Antipas was one who was put to death. In fact, history tells us he was the very first Christian martyr under the Romans. He was the first to be put to death by Rome. He refused uh, to burn incense on the altar and declare that Caesar was Lord. As we saw last week, there was the emperor worship taking place in that day. And you were told to go in and declare that Caesar was a god. And as Antipas was brought in, he had refused to do this, and he was given the opportunity. He was brought before the Roman proconsul. He was told to burn the incense and say, Caesar is God. But Antipas replied, only Jesus is God. And as he declared this, the Roman official said, Antipas, you do, not, do you not know that the whole world is against you? Do you not know that the whole world is against you? And Antipas looked at him and replied, then Antipas is against the whole world. This is a man who was faithful. And the, the face of death, knowing he was about to be put to death, said, I will not compromise. I will not bow the knee and declare that a man is God because only the son of man, Jesus Christ, is God. And Antipas was taken and he was put inside uh, a brass bowl, if, you know, you can picture a big Texas smoker these days, how we have these big cauldrons that we put our meat in and smoke. That's what they did. They offered this meat to the gods in that day in the pagan temples. And they had this brass bull and they put Antipas alive into this cauldron and they cooked him to death because he refused to deny uh, his faith in Jesus Christ. In Revelation 2.13, Jesus singles this one man out as he speaks to this church, and he says, Antipas is my witness, my faithful one. These were high words of praise because as you look back at Revelation 1.5, that same uh, description is used of Jesus Christ himself. Last week, as we looked at the church of Smyrna and the suffering and persecution taking place, I asked you to, to spend time in prayer this past week and decide, what are you willing? What are you willing to sacrifice for the one who sacrificed himself for you, Jesus Christ? Would we as men and women, boys and girls today, be willing to face even death for the one who died to save us from our sins? And as we look at Antipas, he was one who said, I am willing to die for the one who died for me. As we're talking about culture and history, Alexander the Great, many of you have heard of, and he was on a campaign to conquer the world. And he came across a great walled city. It wasn't Pergamum, but it was one like it that was fortified and was able to withstand uh, huge uh, sieges that would take place in that day. If they couldn't take down the walls, they would just wait the people out and starve them to death. Well, as Alexander came to this one particular city and sent terms of surrender, the king in that city laughed at Alexander. And he said, we have supplies and water and things to stay in our city for years. So we're not going to surrender. You, you guys just camp out and wait out there all you want. Well, Alexander, this city was near a, a big precipice like we see in Pergama. And so Alexander said to the king, I want you to see the power that I have. And so he ordered his army uh, to, to gather up and form up in a single file line headed toward this cliff. And all the people of this great walled city were on the walls watching this army. 
And as the soldiers marched toward this cliff that would drop off to their death, the first soldier, without even slowing down, stepped off the cliff and fell to his death. The next one in line stepped off and fell to his death. And another, and another, and another. And the line, without even breaking ranks, without even slowing down, continued to march to the cliff, soldier after soldier, dropping off the cliff. And finally, Alexander gave the command to stop. Wouldn't you have been glad if you were the next soldier as you came to the cliff? And then the army returned and surrounded the city, and the people inside the city realized that against that type of devotion, they were powerless, and they would ultimately be defeated. And they opened the gates of the city, and the people came pouring out in surrender. Now, I share that story uh, because what would happen in our day if we as God's people, we sing the song, I'm in the Lord's army, you know, and we do the little cute little motions that the kids do. But what if we were to be like Alexander's troops? What if we were to be like Antipas, one who said, I'm willing to be faithful even unto death? What are the strongholds that belong to Satan that would fall? First, in our own individual lives, as we turn from the sin and the things that we are involved in in our life that we know do not honor God. And then what impact could we have on our community, on our city, on our, our, on our world and the culture in which we live if we were Christians who were faithful even unto death as Antipas was. I want you to remember the previous churches we've talked about, how those who were in Ephesus, as they let their light shine in the darkness of the Ephesian city there, remember how uh, the temple to Diana, the temple to Artemis that was there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, how as the Christians stood for the true God, Jesus Christ, how temple worship fell away, and not only were the businesses going bankrupt, but ultimately people quit worshiping at that temple. And they turned that city away from pagan worship and the world with it toward knowing who the true God was. And then we saw in Smyrna the impact that happened as the church there, even facing death, stood for Christ. And we talked about how in our day, all the churches, uh, all the countries that have been impacted by the Christians, who even as they face death, are unwilling to turn from the Savior. You know, we live in a country in America that is turning away from God and, and we as Christians are wondering what, wh- why and what should we do. And we talked last time about how people were, willing to, were, were looking at those who were willing to die and said, is there really something worth dying for? And as they said, yes, there is. For Jesus Christ, the one who died for me, that had opened doors to witnessing for the gospel. And as you think about the places that God has you, your homes, your neighborhoods, your schools, your workplaces, If we were to be men and women who were faithful like Antipas, even to the point of death, knowing that we could lose our jobs, positions on squads and schools, different things that we would say there is something more important than the passing things of this world and the impact that we could have. God tells those who were there in this city, but I have a few things against you. He says, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat the things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. He goes on to say in verse 15, this you also have uh, some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You'll recall in Revelation 2.6, we talked about who the Nicolaitans were. They followed a former church leader who had corrupted the, the good news of grace 
who had taken the Christian liberties that we have and had said, you know, it's, it's no big deal to engage in the sin of the day because God's going to forgive you anyway. And so he said, just do what everybody else in the world is doing. Go and worship in the, the pagan temples. Take part in eating the, the meat sacrificed to idols. You can, you can take part in the promiscuity of the temple prostitution and all the things that were happening. But those in, in Ephesus were standing firm for the truth. There were those in this city, in Pergama, that were not doing that. They were joining with the heresy of the Nicolaitans. There were others who were compromising as they uh, fell into the sin of Balaam and Balak. And if you're wondering who these guys are, they're, they're from the Old Testament. Balak was a king. He was one of the foreign kings. Uh, the Midianites and Moabite kings were going against Israel. And God was blessing the people of Israel, and they were unable to defeat the Jews. And so they, they hired a prophet by the name of Balaam. He was a true prophet of God who for a while spoke for God. But then there was a lot of money offered to him, and he said, you know, I want the money. And so he joined in with the enemy kings, and they said, we want you to curse the people. And so they got up, and there was Israel before them. The, uh, they're up on a mountain, and, and as he goes to curse the people, God, who was the one who was in control, uh, made him speak words of blessing instead. Now, this infuriated the pagan kings. They said, we're not paying you to bless them. We want you to curse them. Remove God's protection. And he tried several times. Each time there was only blessing that could come from his mouth. And so finally he said, okay, God will not let me curse the people, but I'll tell you how you get God's people to turn from him. It's through compromise. He said, what you need to do is give your daughters in marriage to the Israelite men. And as they marry your daughters, they will be drawn into the pagan practices and they will turn from following God with their hearts and they will be compromised and God will withdraw his hand of blessing. And as you read through the story there in Numbers 24, you see what happened. Uh, the, the kings followed through, I'm sorry, in Numbers 25. And what happened is 24,000 of the Israelites were struck down in judgment because of their compromise. And so this is what we're reading about. God is saying to those in Pergamum, you guys are, are compromising little bits at a time. And to illustrate what can happen, uh, someone shared about a diet they were on that went like this. It says, for breakfast, half of a grapefruit, one piece of whole wheat toast, no butter, coffee, black. Lunch, four ounces of lean broiled chicken breast, skin removed, one cup of steamed zucchini, tea, no sugar, one Oreo cookie. Mid-afternoon snack, the rest of the package of Oreo cookies, <laughs> one quart of Rocky Road ice cream, one jar of hot fudge, dinner, two loaves of garlic bread, heavy on the butter, large sausage, pepperoni pizza, extra cheese, dessert, three candy bars, an entire frozen cheesecake eaten directly from the freezer. Oh, the impact of one Oreo cookie. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny when we think of it in terms of a diet like that. But it's not so funny when it comes to our walk with God, is it? And that's what happens to us. We open the door just a crack, one little chink. We say, it's no big deal. It's just this little thing. It really doesn't matter. But as we know from personal experience, what happens is we get on a slippery slope. 
And one little thing leads to another little thing to another little thing. And soon we're like that hunting and fishing club in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, that are building one thing on top of another until ultimately there is a complete and catastrophic collapse. And this is what happens, and this is what God is warning us about. As you think about those great walled cities, the way they would come and finally try to break into them is they would bring these huge battering rams and they would have these things that would hit the gates of the city or the wall in some place. They'd hit it five, 10, 20 times, sometimes with little or no effect. But what was happening is with each hit of that battering ram, the walls were being weakened, the gate was being cracked, and eventually there would be a complete and catastrophic collapse as the wall fell in or the gate crashed open and the enemy army was able to, to flood in. And the same thing happens with us. We, we had one little compromise on another. And before we know it, there is this collapse in our life some type of a failure in, in, in our morals or some other way, and we wonder what happened. And what God says is, what happened is you were making these compromises along the way, and he warns us to repent, to turn from them before it's too late. Look at Revelation 2.16. Jesus says, therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The Greek word for repent, you, you remember, means to, to have a change of our mind that leads to a change of our action. It means that we recognize we're going in the wrong direction, so we literally stop and we turn around and we go back in the other direction. And the picture is, if we're with God, if we're in fellowship with Christ, we're with him, and when we sin, what we do is we turn our back on God and we go toward our sin. And he says we need to recognize we're headed down the wrong road. One that is headed for catastrophe is the bridge is out. And he says what we need to do is to, to not only realize we're going in the wrong way, but we need to do something about it. We need to stop. Stop going to that website where we're looking at pornography. Stop flirting with that coworker at work that it's just innocent little talk, but we're finding ourselves more and more thinking of that person rather than our spouse. We need to stop uh, compromising in the, the things at work or at school that are going to lead us farther and farther down the road where suddenly the things we never would have done before we're willing to do. And what he says is we turn around and we come back to God. And for someone here this morning, it may be that you've never come to Christ. And what he says is today you need to understand that you were lost. You're headed down that broad road of destruction as the Bible describes it, where there is a bridge that is out and it will lead to that place called the lake of fire, what we call hell. And he says, but I've given you a bridge instead. I've laid the cross of my son Jesus across that chasm of sin that separates me from you. And you can walk by faith across the cross of Christ and, and come to me. And so he says what we need to do is to, to realize our need for a Savior and turn to him and to come to faith. But for those who were already believers like this, who were walking away from God, he says you need to repent. You need to realize there is coming judgment. As he speaks of the sword of his mouth again, remember as we saw in Revelation 2.12, uh, Jesus Christ has the sharp two-edged sword. And we see this sword described again in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. There it says, for the word of God, this is the Bible, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and, soul and spirit and of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jesus Christ is the perfect judge. 
It wasn't the Roman proconsul that, get, that had the decision of life and death. It is Jesus Christ, Jesus alone. And he offers to us the opportunity for forgiveness when we sin. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I've been, I've been in sin, Roger. I've walked away from God. I've, I've been living a life not honoring to him. What he says today is repent. Realize where you're going the wrong way and stop. Turn around this morning in repentance and say to God, God, I've been walking away from you, but I want to come home today. And it's not just words that you're going to mouth or thoughts that you're going to have. It it requires actions as well that as you leave here today, you go home and you get rid of that stuff you've got in a a hidden place of sin. It it requires that you uh, break off some of those relationships or or business uh, dealings that you've been doing in the wrong way. And you say to God, God, I want to walk with you. I want to live for you. Now, we've all made mistakes. We've all sinned. That's what the Bible calls mistakes. And it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, what we earn. Sometimes we think, well, if I'm just good enough, I can earn my way to heaven. But what God says is, you can't get to me that way. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The bridge is out. We can't jump far enough to get across that chasm of sin. But Jesus provided the way home. The wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus died. He paid that penalty for us. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we turn from our sin and we turn to him, we will be saved. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Again, we see we can't be good enough, not as a result of works. And so what God says is if you're here today and you've never received his great gift of grace, he invites you to do so. He invites you to come home. Now, for those of you who are believers in Christ, when we sin, we do not lose our salvation. What we lose are our rewards in heaven. The Bible is clear that God has given us the gift of eternal life. And he says there in Romans 10, 28 and 29 that no one can snatch us out of his hand. He pictures us being in the nail-scarred hands of Christ closed around. And then he says, God the Father who is greater than all has closed his hand around. Romans 8, 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you read to the end of the chapter and it says nothing can separate us from the love of God. But what we can lose are rewards. Last week, we talked about one of the rewards waiting for faithful believers in heaven called the crown of life. And we saw it was a special reward for those who have endured and gone through terrible times of suffering. What Antipas faced here as well, as he gave his life, and there are special rewards for them. So while we can't lose our salvation, we can lose eternal rewards. And you have to decide, are the things of this world that may last for at best 100 years worth what you will be giving up for all eternity? And the easy answer to that is no, of course not. And so we have to decide today, will we live for God in a world that is turning more and more away from God? Revelation 2.17 tells us, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. 
Now, the hidden manna here is a reference to Exodus chapter 16 in verses 32 through 33. There God told Moses to gather some of the manna. The manna was the bread of provision that God gave to his people as they wandered in the wilderness. Remember, they were out in the desert and they had no way to have food. And every morning God provided the manna. And so they would go out and they would gather it. And the day before the Sabbath, they could gather two days of manna. Well, God told the people to uh, gather this daily and it's to remind them of their, the, what God had provided for them. He told Moses when the Ark of the Covenant was built, he said, I want you to put something in the Ark of the Covenant, get a jar and put some of the manna in it and close it up and put it as a testimony inside the Ark of the Covenant. That was the hidden manna. It was hidden away in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was there to remind uh, the people of Israel of God's provision. And as he mentions this to those in Pergama, he says, let me tell you something, I can provide for you. The, The culture and society may be against you. Remember last week in Smyrna, we saw without the certificate, they could not buy and sell or even go to the market and get food. And what he says to the believers there in Pergama is, I'm capable of feeding you. You don't have to compromise and eat the meat sacrificed to idols. You don't have to give in to the world. I can meet your needs. The reference to the manna here is more than just that physical food. It's also tied in with the theme of eternal life that they would have through faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And he contrasts that with the manna of old. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verses 49 through 51. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is saying, when you come to faith in me, the bread of life, uh, you will not die. We die a physical death. He's speaking of that second death. He says, you will not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I give for, uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. Now Christ continues this theme of eternal life for those who are his as he promises to give a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. The Greek word describing this type of stone is only used three times in the whole Bible. Twice in the letter we're looking at and one other time in the book of Acts. In Acts 26.10, the Apostle Paul says, And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, but I also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. You remember that the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, he was named Saul, and he was a Jewish leader who was hunting down and killing Christians. And Paul says, at the time of trial, when I was given the opportunity to vote life or death, I would cast a black stone. I would vote death for the Christians. And so the image of the white stone in, in the ancient times, it's how you, you voted. You would put a white stone for yes or a black stone for no in terms of capital death sentences. And so, uh, I'm sorry, yes for acquittal and and black for death. And so a white stone said that you were going to be given life, that you would be set free. And when Christ says he gives us a white stone, he's choosing life. He says, I give you life. And when it comes to the vote of life or death, Jesus is the only one who gets to decide. In John 5, 22, it tells us, for not even the father... 
judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. There in Revelation chapter 20, it is Jesus Christ who is on the great white throne judgment. He is the one who decides, no, you will not enter into heaven because you rejected me, and so therefore you have to pay the penalty of death yourself. There is nobody who will be able to stand before God and say, this is not fair. What God will say is, I died for you. I died to pay that penalty of death, but because you chose to reject my death in your place, you have to pay the penalty yourself. For those who receive him, they are given a a white stone, the vote of life, demonstrating that we have entrance into heaven. Now it says on that stone is a new name. In the Bible, we see where names are sometimes changed to denote a new relationship or a new responsibility. Think of Abram, who became Abraham, the father of nations. Think of Saul that I just mentioned, who became Paul, from a persecutor of the church to a leader in the church after he had an encounter and came to faith in Christ on the road to Damascus. And so what happens for us as believers is when we come to faith in Christ, think of what happened this morning as we dedicated these babies What we said is the mom and dad have chosen a name for this child. It is a new birth, a new life, and they've given a name. And what God has done with us is he says, when you are born again, when you become a believer in Christ, I've given you a new name. Some of you come from traditions, uh, like I was raised Catholic, and when you were baptized, you were often given uh, another name uh, after one of the saints or something. Well, converts in that day who were Gentiles had been named after many pagan gods. And when they came to faith in Christ, and as they were being baptized as a sign of their new relationship, they were given a new name to mark that they were now a believer in Christ and no longer belonging to some god of the world. And what Jesus is saying is you, will, you and I will be given a new name in heaven that only two people know, the Lord and you uh, or me. Uh, we, will, we will be the only ones who know our new name. In Revelation 2, 17, well, first in John ten three, Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and they are let out. God will call our name one day and you will know it and he will know it and those who are his who will, will respond to him. In Revelation 2.17, it says, these things are for those who have overcome. An overcomer, as we saw last week, is someone who has placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.4-5 through 5 tells us, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Friends, if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so today. I invite you to say to God this morning, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize, God, that I've blown it, that I haven't always been perfect. Yes, I've made mistakes. Some of them are horrible. But do you know that God says no sin you've ever committed is beyond my forgiveness? Remember 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. There is nothing you have done that can keep you from God. Romans 5 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you're here this morning and you've never accepted his great gift of grace, I want to lead you in a prayer now. It's your way of saying to God, God, this morning I'm repenting. I recognize I've been going the wrong way and I want to stop. And I want to turn around and I want to come home. 
And if you're doing that for the first time, you'll find that his arms are open wide for you, not because they're nailed to the cross, but because he's waiting to welcome you home. If you'd like to receive his great gift of grace, then pray this prayer with me. It's just your way of telling God that you're accepting his gift of new life. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And I recognize that because of it, I've been far from you. And God, I don't want to spend eternity separated from you. In that place of the second death, the lake of fire separated from you. I want to come home. I want to become a part of the family, adopted as a son or a daughter of yours. I thank you, Jesus, for your great love for me, that you were willing to go to the cross and pay that penalty of death that I owed. Today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin and to you to be my Savior. Thank you, God, for the gift of new life. I pray this in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front. There are prayer leaders here. We would love to talk with you and help you to take the next step to grow in your walk with God. For the rest of us who are believers, God calls on us to be like Antipas, where he says, you are my faithful witness. He calls us as we walk out of the doors here today to go into the world and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Remember to stay for the congregational meeting if you're a member. God bless you. You're dismissed.